This is Philip Curran, film, television and theatre composer, and you're listening to GMI. Welcome to GMI. My name is Jed Brocky and I run the Guitar and Music Institute. Podcast episode number 42. Now for those that have listened to this podcast over the years, you'll recognise something slightly different. That's right. The opening music is not our usual mad frenzied rock piece by Fraser McMillan, that wonderfully talented guitar player who very kindly donated that to the show. The music you're listening to is by a film and TV composer named Phil Curran. Phil is an old student of mine quite a few years back now and since leaving university he's actually been in a lot of demand and built a great career writing music of all sorts for theatre, film and TV. So this show is going to be a little longer than normal because I'm actually got the rights from Phil to put some of his music in the show. The vast majority of it will be Asian in its sound. But uh, there's also an electronics piece. There'll also be a video on the GMI website. That's at www.guitarmusicinstitute.com where you can listen to more of Phil's music, watch a video of him and see him in action and his workstation and all the rest of it. So even if you're listening to this on iTunes or any of the other download sites, come on over to guitarmusicinstitute.com and go to podcasts and you'll see a little more of Phil and you'll see some video. I'm really proud to present Phil Kern, who's always a standout student and now we're going to hear how he's gone about making his career in the world, the very competitive world, let's be honest, of scoring for film and TV and theatre. Here's that interview coming up now. Phil Curran, how good it is to see you again. Hello, Jed. Good to see you again. <laughs> it's funny, uh, we are in the same country, folks, but uh, the way that it's going, it sounds like he's a million miles away. You're not on the moon, are you, Phil? No, no, I'm based I'm up in Perth now. Uh, Australia, yeah. <laughs> May as well be. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you used to be able to, they, they just started flights up to uh, Perth, Australia from London. They, they're not running anymore. Oh, right, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Now, the reason you're on is um, you uh, were touched by the magic of film scoring and you now have realised that dream and become a film composer. Can I just say, how cool is that? And how did you do it? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. Well, um, I suppose it, it kind of it goes back. and uh, But, yeah, like now, so, like, as as where I sit now, I'm sat in the studio in Perth, uh, making a living out of writing music for films, television and theatre which is amazing, really cool. But it goes back, I'm not sure if you want the whole story. I don't know if I'm waffling, just guide me. Um, but I, I, might, I might pop in up very occasionally, but this is about you, Phil. So yeah. tell, you, tell your journey. Tell the journey. Um, so I, I suppose like uh, just briefly, you know, like, like I suppose like a lot of musicians, you know, you start as a kid. Uh, I started playing guitar when I was 12 uh, after watching uh, Back to the Future. Michael J. Fox played Johnny B. Good. I thought that is the coolest thing I've ever heard or seen. 
guitar like guitar solo so that's was, was that not did he not play it before it had actually been played in real life oh or the guitar he was playing hadn't been it's one of those uh, he was actually yeah. playing it before it had been actually played in real life or before the guitar had come out really yeah apparently you can check that up check that up at home folks <laughs> so, so that like that started my journey into like becoming a guitar player so through the teenage years i got really obsessed in, into guitar and then you know rock and metal and solos and, and then i got you know heavier and heavier thrash metal and so on but kind of parallel to that i started to get really into film scores uh and i think it was like uh you know as a kid you know listening to the film scores like uh 80 i grew up on 80s fantasy films like cheesy 80s, 80s fantasy films like cruel willow the goonies all this kind of stuff so i had these kind of like two kind of parallel things going on guitar on one side film scores on the other and the both of them like i, I grew an obsession as i grew older and then um and then I came to Napier University, 2002. And at that point, I was totally obsessed with film scores because, like, you know, Lord of the Rings came out. I got obsessed with the Lord of the Rings scores, which you know you're not a fan of. Yeah, I always know. But I, I got just really up into, like, big, dramatic, orchestral, ethereal film music. Well, Phil, why did... You're from originally from Liverpool. Why did you come up to Edinburgh for that? So I was applying to universities, uh, and I got... Got an offer from Lippe, you know, the Liverpool Institution of Performing Arts. Wow. So I got an offer from there, which was I had to get two C's at A level and I got a C and a D because I'm thick and didn't get it. It's <laughs> <laughs> D for dunce. Yeah, it may, yeah, it may as well be. And like two C's is like quite like an E, like that's classes like, right, you just, just do all right. So basically so Napier was totally desperate. <laughs> well, I came up, well, I'd, I'd so I applied an audition for Lippa, got uh, got the offer, and then came up to Edinburgh and applied, done an audition for Napier with uh, Graham Weir. And but I, I loved it though because like you know it was up at Craighouse Campus, beautiful campus, wasn't it? Um, and yeah, done my audition there, and then Graham Weir actually like on my way out, he just said, yeah, we you know we you know I've done like a guitar solo, sweet picking, and and then he just said, yeah, we'd love to have you. It's like an unconditional offer. So that became my Napier became my second choice but i'm so glad it worked out because you know uh, i wouldn't have hired i wouldn't have gone to uh being able to study music for screen which i'm going to come to so um so i started at napier didn't know what i wanted to do really I, I all i knew was that i was a competent guitar player um but i didn't know what i wanted to do for a living like a lot of kids you know i just thought well let's, let's just go and study and just see what options sort of spring up then it all changed. I always talk about this as like the, the moment it really changed was the third year of uni at Napier and we got uh, the option to study music for screen by Jed Brocky. And honestly, I walked out of that first lesson going, that's it. That's what I want to do. You know, yeah, I just wish all the students I taught when I was teaching that course were like you, Phil, because you were a total dream student. <laughs> I was just, it was nuts because, like, again, I, I was just, I was so obsessed with film scores, but I just, I didn't think I had the skills to do it, to do it because I was just, all I was, I was a guitar player, you know, an isolated guitar player. I just wanted to, I wanted to play guitar solos and not socialize with anyone. And, you know, I was, I was getting good, you know, in the field of, in the wide field of rock and thrash metal, I was quite a decent player. <laughs> Does that comment you've just made hint at some dark neuroses in your mind not wanting to talk to people? I always thought you were a really chatty person. Well, yeah, I know. And I was just, like, I think I remember coming up to Napier and seeing all the other guitar players and going, oh my God, these are 
way better than me. You know, because it's, you know, you sort of like, you, when you're at home, it's like, oh, yeah, Phil's a great guitar player. Then you come up to the big city and then it's like, no, you're not actually as good as me. But yeah, I just remember that first lesson in Music for Scream where I thought I was like the only person who was into kind of film music. And then when you started talking and you taught the lesson and you started saying, mentioning composers like Alan Silvestri, John Williams, James Horner, Hans Zimmer. And I was just like, oh my God, someone else is into this stuff as well. I was like, I was blown, I was mesmerized. I was like, wow. And then, you know, you were, you were analyzing like, you know, scenes and doing music theory that related to film scores. And I was just, I, I was just like eating it all up because, you know, when, when you sort of analyze music that you, you love, it just becomes so much easier, doesn't it? Rather than analyze music that you're not that into really. But that was it. The, the, that was the first lesson after that. I not not too long after I quit the band and. What? Assumed. I didn't know that. So you actually quit your band and that yeah. was it. Yeah. Do you think if someone, I know we're going to get into the mince and tatties of it all later on, but if someone yeah. wants to do that, do you feel they have to have that exceptional drive that you had to do it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, in fact, I remember you saying at the end of the first lesson, uh, I think it was the first lesson where you saying, if you want this bad enough, you can do it. And it's just true, but you, yeah, you do need to have it. It needs to, it, it can't just be a passion. It needs to be a complete obsession. Like I, I think, which, you know, maybe an, an unhealthy obsession, but because uh, it is difficult and you're going to get loads of knockbacks and, uh, you're going to get more knockbacks. Well, at least I've definitely had more knockbacks than successes. And yeah, I suppose the thing that keeps you dry, uh, keeps you driven is uh, is just the obsession for, for what, wanting to do it. Don't you think that getting knocked back, which is a, a common theme actually, no matter what what people are talking about in terms of the a career music. Yeah, I, mean, I had another ex Napier student on in the last interview, and he was talking as a guitar player. You know all about how hard it is to get in. Yeah, it's almost a right rites of passage, isn't it? I mean, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. In a way, this sound might sound quite sadistic, but like I kind of hope that. If a new student got into film score and TV score, I, I do hope that they go through a little bit of the pain that I've been through as well. Because <laughs> if they were just to like waltz into it and get a big job, I'd be like, you'd be, I'd be really good. If, I'd be like, oh, what have I done wrong? You know? Yeah, it, it definitely builds up your uh, mentality and resilience and perseverance and all this kind of stuff. And it's yeah, definitely a rite of passage. And I think all the knockbacks make the victories that more sweeter. So from doing the peer course, which kind of put uh, fuel in the fire, yeah. what was the next big sort of landmark in your journey? Yeah, well, uh, so I've done the rest of the NAPI degree another two years and uh, sort of focused everything I could on the film music, uh, film score stuff. And then I graduated and I graduated with a few, like maybe five or six student films under, under my belt. Uh, and then I just, I started, I kept doing short films and then, and then I started getting uh, calling up production companies based around Edinburgh, uh, where I was living at the time. And I got my first bit of commercial work uh, through a production company in Edinburgh called Plum Films, uh, based out on uh, Constitution Street in, in Leith. And um, that was just a case of, like, I, I, I discovered the world of net, like networking, because there's so many different aspects of being a composer. It's not just about writing, it's networking and emailing, cold calling, and you, you, your own agent. 
And it's, it's a little like an iceberg, isn't it? Two thirds of the works, everybody just sees the, the flash stuff at the top. Yeah, 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 that's it. It's like writing music is sometimes only a small part of it, and a lot of the time in the year, you're trying to find jobs. Like, this, that's the cold part. You, you know, you're trying to find employment. And yeah, I'd had like, you know, I'd, you know you'd have, I'd emailed hundreds of production companies, and maybe 10 of them get back, nine of them will say, we'll keep you on file, and then maybe one might give you an opportunity. But my first, yeah, but my first little, I wouldn't say it was a break, but my first sort of like uh, broadcast piece of work was from this uh, production company. And I learned uh, the world of pitching music. So I got in touch with this production company. They happened to be doing a 30 second TV advert for a, a shopping mall in, in Newcastle. So it was going to play on the northeast of England, whatever their regional uh, station is. And um, so they sent me this advert and said, Would you like to write as a demo? Uh, so I, so I was like, yeah, don't care, yeah, like you know, I've been graduated for like two years. I was like, yeah, cool. And it was two hundred and fifty quid, and I was like, like that was a lot of money. I was just whoa, like uh, how exciting must that have been? Oh, honestly, I I hadn't even gotten the job, and I was I was already looking for properties to buy in Hollywood. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you see, um, the industry, you got that that gig, yeah. For people listening who might be interested in this, did that lead on to more work with the same company, or is, or does it just fizzle out and you you're left on your own again? Something. Yeah, like um, I've done this. I done some work for them there last year, so I, I don't get work off them every single month. But once once a year, like I'll get a little something. So it's um, yeah, so it's definitely a, an ongoing relationship, and they're good folk there and. So it's a reputational thing. You're, it's like a, a burn with little pebbles floating and building up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, in the mix, if they're ever on working on something that they need a composer, then you know if you've done a good job for them in the past, then you well one you're a good composer, but two you're easy to work with and good to work. They like working with you. Uh, they'll they'll last you back, and you'll be in the mix. You know, going forward. We're just going to take a break from the interview, and I thought you would enjoy listening to a piece of Phil's music. Here it is.
Now, we, we should really mention, um, was this job that you got before or after you did another person that I've actually podca- uh, podcasted, Hummy Man? Had you done that course yet? Yeah, so I th- that was 2006, the Hummy Man Summer School. And I'd just, I'd just graduated in the, the May or the June, I think it was the August, I think, wasn't it, the Hummy Man? And yeah, I, that again, that taught me so much as well. That then two weeks of just intense... Uh, intense learning, uh, so that was that was all after uh, the Homie Man Film School, which again I loved, absolutely loved it. Yeah, it was it was quite for for people out there who may be interested. Hummy Man has written a couple of Emmy winning scores and has done lots and lots of work. Continues to work, but it also runs courses in writing for film over in Seattle. So it's called the PNW Film Scoring. I think that's right, isn't it? Well worth looking up if you're interested in this. Anyway, back to you, Phil. So you've managed to get your first gig. Yeah. What happens then? Do you think you've cracked it? Yeah, well, you definitely like have like, you know, a, a, a bit of a high for a while and think, well, that's it. Now the offers will come flooding in. But yeah, it's, that was a hard lesson to learn where you know, you've still like, you. I mean, to be honest, like, that wasn't, a big gig but at the time it was for me and then I got um, a foot in the door with a production company in Glasgow because a short film I'd written the music for uh, the students were from Napier Film School I met like a few uh, few few guys there so I've written music for a short film and the editor of it he was working at a production company in Glasgow called 55 Degrees who are uh, not around now and I got some uh, corporate work off them because the editor really liked the music I'd done recommended me to this production company and like that's that's the, the way it works that's uh, which is a good thing you know you get recommended by people so it's very much that's that's interesting isn't it someone that you were actually at college with yeah then goes on and you have these relationships don't you in, in film music where yeah. directors and composers almost do the their whole lives together yeah, and that's it. And it's, it's not in a way like, you know, it's about creating a network of people, which I know is a bit of it, maybe a bit of a shallow thing to say, create a network, but just forming up good relationships with people. And I say, I can stem back work, like the big gigs that I go for now, I can actually stem the roots back to to Napier. A lot of them, you know, I thought if I hadn't done that gig, I wouldn't have got that, or I wouldn't have written music, that music that got me in the door to them, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I got uh, my foot in the door with this production company and, and got uh, a lot of corporate work through them. What do you mean by a production company and what do you mean by corporate work, Phil? So the production company, this particular production company, they've done a mixture of broadcast work like television adverts, so commercial work. So I got work like that off them. And corporate work is like videos for businesses, primarily online work, uh, online videos for businesses, uh, videos for museums, which was kind of a, a random one, but the... You know, the Summerlee Museum in Glasgow, uh, I wrote music for all the videos there, which was just like another a line of work that I never thought I would really, you know, get into. But like, it was just like one of them nice little random jobs. So, yeah, corporate work is just music for businesses of some sort, non-commercial. So they, I got some steady work for them for a couple of years, but I was still a part-time composer. I was still working part-time doing bar work and then I became a career assistant. Because the work, the money I was earning wasn't. It was it was good pocket money, but it wasn't full time, full time wage. Is that a big danger for young composers trying to move from doing it part time to full time? Because I'm assuming you have to put an awful lot of time and effort into getting the work. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, sometimes you could spend like 
just just getting the work and, and uh, trying to trying to apply for jobs and getting the pitches and you can spend like I spend days not even writing music but just on the internet looking at production companies uh, calling them up emailing them and stuff like that and without even writing a note and then when when the time comes to write the music you've got to be like ready to you know ready to go were you just getting in touch with everyone or were you looking specifically for companies that maybe worked with your style of writing or do you have to just be able to write in any style yeah like i i would just go for anyone and everyone really uh there's always that thing that i remember you saying where you've being versatile is a good thing because it means that you could take on more work, you know. So, you, you know, it's not all about writing the epic film music. Sometimes you've got to write an indie track or a pop track uh, for, like, a, you know, that TV advert. And so, yeah, I was just att- approaching anyone and everyone to start with. And then if someone, like, you know, you, you always say yes to a job, don't you? And then you learn it. You learn how to do it later. <laughs> I love reggae. I love funk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Bluffer's Guide's right beside you. So, are you saying that, um, so as a composer, as as you start to get more work, um, and you mentioned this at the beginning, Phil, you said you've done some theatre work, you've done TV, you've done film. Do you really need to have a diverse, a finger in many pies sort of thing? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. Uh, but, you know, if you mean, if you don't feel comfortable writing in a certain style, then I wouldn't, like, go and pursue like a project that is looking you know if, if you're not into like writing jazz music and maybe go and pursue a like if there's a film looking for a jazz composer I, well I, I probably wouldn't go for it and uh, but yeah just i suppose i don't i know the term jack of all trades isn't really that flattering but uh yeah it's, it's good to like i can just be diverse versatile and yeah just Try covers uh, as many styles as you can within reason, really. But I think as like as the years have gone on, I've, I've definitely noticed that there's certain projects that I get offered more than others. Like you know, I've, I've done like a lot of low budget drama, thriller, feature films, as well as the kids' television music and kids' theatre. So okay, I've definitely got two sort of genres that I seem to be busier in. I wanted to talk to you about that because you've done work for a whole range of uh, big names, Discovery Channel, ITV, but you've also um, done work for the BBC, Kids uh, or Children's, I don't know if it's called the Children's Unit anymore. Sounds very uh, 1950s Stalinist, (laughs) the Children's Unit. (laughs) You have done that. Could you tell us about that? Because it's very, it's quite exciting and a huge, dare I say, feather in your cap. Yeah, that like that was the those the CBBC. Uh, the, yeah, that that first show with the CBBC was like, I suppose was my my break really, and that's when I went from being a part time composer to a full time composer. So um, it was the year it was twenty fourteen when I got this job. But there's like just going back, the guy who got put me in touch with the CBBC people. I emailed him in 2009. He was a music publisher based at Universal Music Publishing. And somehow or other through, like, you know, days of networking and emailing, I got put in touch with this guy called Simon, uh, Simon Mortimer. He doesn't work at Universal now. But I emailed him, and he seemed to like the music that I'd sent, and he put me up for a couple of documentaries that didn't work out. So nothing came of it. We kept in touch over the years, and then five years later, 2014, I get an email out of the blue from Simon just to say, 
CBBC are making a drama up in Scotland and they're looking for a Scottish-based composer and they've put your name forward for it and it's like an email you get where like the hairs on the back of your neck stand up like worse is more like dead exciting. Uh, so expect a call from someone getting the job. It's like, you know, long story short, I got the job. That's a big deal. How, how did you... Uh... How did you feel about that? There must have been a slight apprehension as well as excitement. Uh, it was really small excitement. It was just just to get it because I knew it'd be a big deal. Because also at that same time, I was pitch I pitched for a CBBS project, which CBBS is like a slightly younger age group. CBBS is like I don't know two to well, three to six, or CBBC is like six to twelve. But anyway, I, I just applied for a CD, CDB's kids show and got rejected. And I was really gutted because I'd spent like two weeks pitching, like writing these demos, recording a singer. And it's two weeks like unpaid work and I sent the demos off and didn't hear anything back for months. Then got a knockback just as, as I was applying for this CBBC show. So the CBBC show was called Eve and it was a sci-fi drama. And it was I just knew it was up my street because I'm, in, I'm into sci-fi and fantasy and... And, and that kind of stuff. Got a point with the producers of the show who liked the, the music that uh, I'd sent them, like they'd like previous music that I'd done. They sent me a script and asked if I could write a couple of demos, so I'd done that. And then I got offered a invite for an interview in at the at the set, which was they were shooting out at Bathgate. Yeah, that's where they do all the stuff, uh, the pyramids. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's where they did train spotting too, as well. Hey, oh, right. The, that period, I was just so excited by it all. You know, going from get an email to, I remember driving to the place in Bathgate going, I'm interviewing for a, a CBBC show, this could be it. And I was just, I was on a high for about two weeks, really, from the email to the interview. But then after the interview, which went really good, and then there was the radio silence, and it was just going from high to like, oh my God, like, it was just, it was awful. The waiting round is, is one of the worst. Outside of being unemployed, waiting to hear about a job is the worst. You know, waiting on someone's making a decision. And then yeah. was was it an email or a letter? It was a phone call. So it was like it'd been about three or four weeks since the interview, and I'd been driving myself like insane. And um, and I actually like emailed the producer Peter Gallagher, who he won't mind me saying this because we're friends now. But I I just sort of lied and said, kind of gave him an ultimatum and said, "Hi, Peter. You know, I've been offered another job. Um, any chance you could let me know about Eve like within the next week or so?" risky very risky and then 45 minutes later my mobile phone rang and it was peter saying yeah we'd like to offer you a job you got it and i just i screamed i uh, just like 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 scream like a football got like someone scores a goal like like a football hooligan scream you know so you you played it cool then phil yeah I put the phone on mute screen then. Oh, that's great news. Thanks, yeah. Peter. <laughs> <laughs> so what exactly had you won the right to do? How much music? How many shows? Yeah, so, so it was uh, series one of Eve was 13 episodes and each episode was half an hour long. So that's six and a half hours of content. So it's it's big. It's like a big gig. It's, and how much music did you have to write for that? So each episode was 30 minutes long. There was easily 20 to 25 minutes of music per episode. Uh, so you're writing hours of music, like 20 minutes, at least 20 minutes of music at a time. So it's almost wall-to-wall music. Yeah, 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 definitely. And that, that's not including, like, you know, you know rewrites and stuff. You write hours of music. And the, the gig, after getting the gig and... You know, the, that initial high. When I started on it, 
it was really difficult. I found it really, really difficult, and uh, I felt the pressure, like um, that. I didn't, th- I didn't think would I'd associate with writing music for kids' TV. I thought it'd be quite relaxed and they'd be happy with you know wherever it is. But they were really like they really pushed me, and they, um, they were very particular about things. And some stuff I'd done we did not like. And some stuff I did that they really like. So perhaps it would be good for people to understand that if you can almost paraphrase when you say they were quite particular, they weren't talking in the language of music, were they? No, well, I, I just remember I'd they'd sent me through episode one and I'd written about half of the score for them to review. Uh, you know, rather than sending them like you know one or two cues at a time, I thought, well, let's just watch a block if you can get into it a bit more. Then, so I went through to Glasgow to the. Had the place where they were mixing it all, sat down, watched episode one, there was a half of it, and they didn't really like the music as much as what I thought. Now, how did you feel at that point? I felt pretty, I felt a bit scared. Like, because I, I remember driving home going, well, I was hoping for like, you know, for a bit of excitement, but they, they didn't like it. They, it was too orchestral. They thought the music was too orchestral and a bit too old-fashioned. What was the brief link? Did they give you a, a, a good enough brief? Because I'm assuming that this is for TV. You didn't... Yeah. Did you have a spot spotting session for this? Yeah, yeah, we did, yeah. So we had a spotting session where we went through the episode and figured out where every cue would start and finish and, you know, discussed each cue, what, it, like, the, the mood that each cue should be or could be. Did they discuss instrumentation? Not really, no. I mean, they, I'd, I'd written demos already, which they liked the sound of. And actually, I'd, I'd blame some of it on me because the demos that I'd written were a bit more electronically leaning. And for some reason, I'd written the first score that was very orchestral. So I think maybe I was probably to blame. So I went back and added in some more contemporary electronics in with the orchestra, which is like kind of the norm now, really, for film scores. Well, not like I was in, I invented it or like I just I put more electronics in, like you know, not like I'm not a pioneer of anything. Yeah, so that's all I did. I, I a little bit less of the orchestra, a bit more of the electronic, edgy sound, and then they started really liking it. You came away were you worried you might have you might lose this job? Yeah, that I was. Yeah, that's that was definitely a fear that creeped in in my brain. I was like, oh, what if these what the like regretting hiring me and stuff like that, but um, but that wasn't you know it wasn't to be the case. I just went back and I think it's just part of the job, really. You know, it's uh, you know some stuff you know you do that you know you, they're not going to like. But anyway, I got the the, the revised score to them very quickly. How quickly? Uh, about four days, and about and so it's half an episode, so it was about twelve minutes of music. So how, how many minutes of music are you writing a day back then, Phil? Anything from three minutes of music up to about five to six. But um yeah, three to three to five to six minutes of music. That's that's when I'm in the full swing, like full, you know, day day one of anything is you know, you're lucky if you write thirty seconds. But once you yeah, once you get into it, yeah, you, you write a lot of music. Well, that, that's quite prolific because most of the guys say about three minutes and you're writing up to double that. Yeah, it's it, I just found that, like, as the time wears on, you work through the episodes, the the schedule gets tight, naturally gets tighter and tighter. And then I remember, like, one, I had to write 10 minutes of music one day. <laughs> and I don't know what happened. It's just, just a blur, you know. You just, you just got to get it done. And, uh, you know, if you write 10 minutes of music a day, it's, it's not going to be, you know, 
Oscar-winning material, probably not, but, you know, it's just... Now, this, this brings me on to a point that I think a lot of people who may be listening to this, who may be interested in a career in this field, they see the glamour of it all. And I remember, uh, I can't remember who the composer was. Yeah. He was in LA and uh, he said he was, dri- <laughs> he was driving down the road and he saw this massive billboard for a film that was coming out and that he was writing the music for and what she hadn't even written the music for and he absolutely crapping himself. But the reality is once it all kicks off, right, it's a very, it's a lot of solitude, isn't it? It's just you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you, like, yeah, you like yourself too. It's just you're in a little bubble and, you know, if, you, if you're on a tight schedule and you've just got to, you've just got to get your head down and write and, you know, I, you can't remember half of the stuff you did or why you did it. Like, why did I go to that chord there? Like, what what was the thing? And it just, it, you just got to go with your instincts and, you know, but it can be quite, an, it can be quite like a magical place to be, I think. You know, it's just, the, the music's kind of... You're connecting the that pipe of of uh, inspiration, but on, on a more practical level uh, and away from all the, the boyhood fantasies of it all, or yeah. girlhood fantasies, that, that must have quite an impact on your family life and the children and all of that. And you obviously need silence or at least not a lot of folks shouting all the time. How does yeah. that work out practically? Well... In uh, for season one of, of Eve, uh, it was great timing because I, I was a month into scoring it. I'd maybe finished episode two and our first baby was born. And I was like, oh, man. like, you know, brand new born, brand new baby in there. In the, we were in the flat at the time. We weren't here. We were just down the road in the two bed, two bed flat. So the, we had one bedroom for, you know, sleeping. The second bedroom was my studio. And then a newborn baby was in there as well. Um so yeah, just like Lauren and my wife, she'd you know take the kid over to see your mom and give me a bit of quiet time. And oh, I just I just, I, I just work until I fell asleep really. And you know, it's it's, it's just I remember it's just an absolute blur. But you know, I'd get up. I'm in the studio for seven. Uh, I'd stop for a bit of lunch, bit of dinner, and then work till eleven midnight and sleep and. And uh, you know, just just keep just keep doing that. And yeah, it's it's uh, having a very understanding wife who you know to score. <laughs> Quite literally, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean that sort of really puts it into it contextualizes it. It's it's not just a cake. What is it? Is it? It's a really high pressure, high demanding. Now with yeah. the advent of nonlinear editing and all that, do you find that they expect even more of you because they know you can cut stuff up and re rejig stuff about? Yeah, yeah. I think that the directors and the producers just you know, they kind of just want to make the show as good as they can. I think sometimes when they are watching an episode in the edit suite without music, they may be sort of starting to see flaws that they otherwise didn't see, and they want the music to maybe cover that up and make the show as good as possible. And music can add, music can do that. Could, you know, like you said, in music for screen, it can make something good really great, or something that's okay, it can make it pretty damn good. Yeah, sometimes it's just like, oh yeah, just go away, just, just go make it better. Just go and do it. So that music that you're creating is called, for the most part, Underscored. Were you surprised at the amount of Underscore you needed to write for that first BBC series? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I think, it, like, the music, it's, it is kind of like a drug. It's like the more you start using it, the more the episode needs it. And then, you know, all of a sudden, uh, 20 seconds of no music can feel like, like a rare, really long time. 
And then when a bit of music comes in, it makes the scenes appear shorter and quicker. Yeah, so I was quite surprised. And I, but in the same, it was kind of a good thing in a way because as the season went on and I became more confident and the music was finding its voice, the, the producers start, and directors started liking the music more and more and wanted just more of it because they liked it that much, which is a nice thing. And plus... Absolutely. And the, plus the more music you write in an episode, the more royalties you get, so... We're going to come on to that for people, yeah. not specifics, but, you know, general, yeah. generals are, uh, around it. What was the actual series called? So the, the, so the, the first series there that I've been talking about was called Eve. Eve. And uh, it was a science fiction. Now, did you feel at the end of that, that is when that was your real education? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, you know, you're getting feedback of people who don't necessarily know that much about, like, you know, technical music terms and things like that, but the, they are discussing the music with you in the context of the television show and, and how they want the music to work within the scene and within the drama. And like, you know, I, yeah, I learned so much. I learned that I had a big weakness at that point about trying to write comedy music. I just I couldn't do it. Like I was good at the drama stuff and the sci-fi stuff and, you know, uh, things like that. But trying to make a scene funny with music. Oh, Mar- I, marimba patch out, no? I know, I know. It's just, it's just like, you know, how, how music can actually ruin a scene. You know, if you try and overcook the comedy music or try and make it too funny, it's like all of a sudden the scene's gone from being mildly amusing to really annoying. Now, now we're being, uh, perhaps, or I being a little presumptuous here, because a lot of people listening to this may be very interested in it, but they may not actually know exactly how you create music. So how, how is it, uh, do you do this with real instruments, Phil, or is it a mixture? How, how does it work? For the most part, I'm, I'm, so I'm here in the studio and I've, I'm just sat in front of the computer, uh, PC, uh, desktop PC, uh, and I use a, my door, uh, Digital Audio Workstations Cubase, which I've been using since Napier. Just That was what we, we used and I've just stuck with it. Because they, they all do one of the same thing, really. But And for the most part, like, I've got my acoustic guitars and my electric guitar and a ukulele, which I use sometimes. But for the most part, for these kids to use series, at least, it's... I'm using um, sample libraries. Okay, I hope you're enjoying the interview and I hope you don't mind taking another break, but I thought it would be a good time to listen to some more of Phil's original music. Enjoy.
what's a sample library then? Well, it's basically, you know, you have uh, an orchestra at your fingertips. So these companies go and record, in case of an orchestra, they'll go and record live players playing individual notes uh, on a string or a horn. Every single instrument in the orchestra, they'll record individual notes. Then that means that you can then load up a patch in Cubase and then you've got a violin, uh, the first violins at your fingertips. Not pre not pre-played phrases where it's just like one finger and it's it's like you actually have to do you do have to create the music so how hard is that with violins have many many different techniques yeah uh, how how hard is it to program i take it you have to program all these things in uh how difficult is that and time, how time consuming is it it can be yeah it can be time consuming yeah if you want the you, you want the strings and, and any of the instruments to sound natural, not just like, oh, let's just do staccato for like two minutes. Like, you know, you want it to like ebb and flow and breathe and be like natural, like a conversation would be. And a lot of it is, it is time consuming because, you know, you, you want to have like different articulations for different phrases of the melody or whatever, but it becomes quicker just the more you use it because it's like, okay, well, I know it's, and you know, you can change the articulation by like either by, a key switch, like on the lower end of your keyboard here, so you've got the Gato, Gato, Marcato, and everything like, you know, harmonics and all this kind of stuff. It just becomes easier. You just become easier and quicker the more you do it, and you, you learn how to use the your software and your instruments. So these um, sample libraries, they can be quite expensive, can't they? Yeah, yeah. Now, when you actually give the cues in to the... Uh production company or, or whoever, do you have to fill in saying which sample libraries you used? I, I haven't done that, no. I don't know if you have to. Normally, if, again, this is just with the BBC stuff, they, they do have to fill in a cue sheet, uh, which lists every single individual cue that you've written, and then they go and submit that to a company, I think it's called Silver Mouse, and then they sort of start calculating your royalties with PRS. PRS is the Performing Rights Society. Yeah. That's an organisation that collects money on behalf of composers. Because that's so. Maybe it would be a good idea to tell people exactly how the money works on a general basis for yeah, composers. Yeah. How would that work then, Phil? Yeah. So again, I, like uh, with the CBBC, what happens is, or, or any channel, in, uh, this is just UK broadcasting, but any channel in the UK has a per minute of music value. So. Say BBC One, for example, primetime BBC One, a composer will get about £90 per minute of music played. Uh, so if you've done, again, this is, a, you know, a BBC One is like one of the most, the best, the best channel, or one of the best, because uh, it's, you know, you get a lot of money for it. So if you have 40 minutes of score on a BBC One primetime drama, times that by £90, and then that's how much money you're going to get for episode one of a drama. And that's PRS? Yes. Performing Rights Society. But you will you also be paid a fee for writing the music? Yeah, yeah. So so again, like, so with Eve, uh, when I first got the job, the the producer like said, you got the job, what fee were you looking for? And I, I just, I was none the wise. I, I, I honestly really, I had like, I thought, well, I'll just charge them a fee per episode times that by 13, then that, that, that'll that give them a figure, which... Uh, they got so, a good deal. Well, I, I said a fee, and then I think they were expecting a lot more because they upped it, so... That was good of them. Yeah. Um, and again, I always worry about, you know, 
I know, like, it's not what a lot of composers and people talk about money because it's private and all this kind of stuff. And plus, it's it's other people's money who, who paid you and stuff. But um, but yeah, so you get a fee for the actual composing, uh, and you get fifty percent upfront for when you start, and then fifty percent on completion. And then on top of that, you get your royalties. So uh, you get mechanical royalties, uh, Phil. Uh, Yes, you do, yeah. So you get PRS, which is the Performing Rights Society, yeah. which has reciprocal deals with performing rights societies all around the world. So if, yeah. if a production is played anywhere, you'll get paid if it's played in outer Mongolia. Yeah, well, yeah, I think so. I think it depends on the channel because uh, uh, even in the UK, some channels, you, you're paid regardless, you know, if it's on a BBC One, BBC Two, ITV channel, if it's on, you're going to get paid. Some, but some of the smaller channels, like, I, I don't know. Cable. They, yeah, like, it's the, the PRS, you sam- they sample them. They sample the channels. So it's look at the draw, if you get royal for them or not. So does that mean that um, cable, you would get a, a lot less in, in terms of per minute than, say, a, a terrestrial, well, so-called terrestrial? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, no, that's right, yeah. So it's like, they call it sensors. So if it's on ITV or, yeah, one of the terrestrial channels or... Um, you're going to get your royalties for it. And then for overseas, I think it may, may depend on the channels, what the channels are like overseas as well. I think every performing rights society works slightly differently. But I've, for EVE over the years, I've got royalties from Australia, Norway, Germany, Sweden, and a few other places. Do you have to sign a contract when you're going into something like this, Phil? Yeah, yeah. So um, again, with, with EVE, uh, the contract... I had to I had to assign over the publishing to the production company because it was an independent production company who uh, were co-producing it with the BBC and the independent production company wanted the publishing royalties because that would be way a way for them to call back some money. So the publishing when someone says like the publishing, basically one pound of a royalty is split into two ways to the writer and the publisher. So one pound of, ro- of a royalty, 50p goes to the writer, 50p goes to the publisher. Did you do a different deal? Because you got signed up for the second series, didn't you? Yeah, um, and I just I just kept it. I mean, I was I just felt like I was in, in no position there to start neg- negotiating. I was just kind of grateful for the second series. And we, we've done three in the end, so it was, I was just grateful for the for the work. Um, but you, I think if you, you've got some clout, then you can negotiate to even keep a percentage of the publishing royalties just so, you know, instead of getting half, you might get your writer's royalties, which are half, and then you might get, you can negotiate 25% of the publishing. It's all it's always up for grabs. I just think it depends on, you know, the confidence you have and the reputation you have, maybe. So sync websites synchronization websites this is a uh, huge on the internet just now where you can put music up and yeah. potentially your music's going to get shown to production companies around the world do yeah. you do you actually take part in that and would if you do would you say to young composers to do the same yeah I'd like i i started doing that when um a few years graduated and then like you know music libraries become becoming more popular you know towards the end of the noughties or at least at least i became more aware of them uh, then, so I just started uploading, you know, unused music or music that pitched for stuff that was just sat there on the hard drive. I just started uploading it, and then um, yeah, it made made some money. You know, you get like you know, again, just a bit of extra pocket money for the most part. Some composers make a living out of it, but it's it's definitely good because sometimes you know you could put up a piece of music 
a director might listen to it and actually get in touch with you about it and go, oh, I, I like that piece of music. And it happened to me once where I'd written a bit of music and a, a German filmmaker made a time-lapse video of Edinburgh and he used the track I wrote. And and I just, the way I found it is I, I Googled myself. <laughs> <laughs> An ego search. I know, it's all coming out now. <laughs> um, so... So and I came across this video and I, and I was like, wow, that video's really cool. This t- beautiful time lapse video of Edinburgh City Centre at night time. So I actually got in touch with the director and said, wow, I'm just thanks for using my music and uh, great video and give me a shout if you know you ever work on anything else. And it so happened that he was making a 20 minute time lapse video called The Tropic of Capricorn, which he was shooting around uh, the world. And uh, he was a guy with self funded. Uh, a self-funded trip and you know paid me to write the music for it and i think the music libraries are definitely worth doing and some of them are harder to get on than others that was a, a great thing you just told us there phil you didn't go mental at the guy for using your music and through that attitude you actually got some more work out of it yeah 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 that's it yeah just again it's just being on top of the ball you know just doing even like googling myself or like just trying to keep tabs on like you know if you've sold music and stuff it's just i just call it detective work networking and, and stuff like that but yeah just being proactive again just trying to see what works out are you a member of any of these websites which hunt down through digital signatures your music i'm not you know i maybe should do just uh, maybe it's just sheer laziness i've not bothered bothered to do it but i've, I've i'm aware of them but i've never like really looked into how they work but yeah maybe uh, maybe i should do i I just want to wrap up and quickly move on. You did two more eaves. Did you find as it went on, it became easier? Yeah, it, it did. Uh, definitely did. My, you know, my relationship with the producer Peter is uh, really good. There's that trust there that he's. I, I I don't feel scared to like write something that's not good. Uh, I'm not scared to make a mistake or send him a piece of music uh, that. He doesn't like, you know, then you develop a shorthand of like, well, I don't like that. Try something else. But and yeah, it just got easier. And I think the music got better and better as well as the, the series went on. Now, once you were on the title credits of a BBC production, did you find you were getting more inquiries? I, I didn't actually know. I, I had a bit of a dry patch, really. Because, again, I was a bit smug about it all, maybe, and a bit naive, where we season three, we just finished season three. And we knew that that was the last one. But in my head, I was like, well, you know, three seasons of a CBBC show, the offers, the phone will be off the hook and, you know, I'll be, I'll be sound. And there, yeah, that didn't happen. I had like a, I took a few, a month off, which was fine because, well, I, yeah, I was just dead, just really quiet, nothing, uh, which was quite, quite scary. And so, and then I just learned that you still have to be proactive. You still have to, and it definitely, it makes it easier for me to like get my foot in the door for other CBBC projects. And because I know a few folk now and I know which people to get in touch with. If I hear about a kid's show that's on BBC, I know who to maybe get in touch with to get in the mix, you know, for the pitching process or, or so, something. But I'm still like, you definitely, I'm st- definitely still proactive. But having said that, the, um, so the last CBBC thing uh, I scored was the Demon Headmaster, which was like the reboot of the 90s show. And I got that job. It was kind of a mixture of things, but 
the producer of the Demon Headmaster was also the producer of Eve, Peter Gallagher. And he got in touch with me one day. He's saying, hey, Phil, producing the Demon Headmaster, do you want to do it? And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. No pitching, no pitching required. So uh, is it a case that composers can get typecast like actors can? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Because of the the areas they work in, the, those people that are also in that production then themselves get typecast, so... Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, yeah. And, and I think, you know, Peter's been offered the job probably because of his work on Eve, and he's like, well, you know, if, if that got the execs like that, that show that I produced, then they must have liked the music. So, so yeah, you get, like, brought on back on board for stuff and potentially typecast, and I suppose the hope is... Everyone's hope, or I say a composer's hope, is that maybe the producer or one of the producers will go off sideways and get a job in a different genre and then bring you on board, and then that's when you start kind of branching out. But here we are, 2020. Yeah. Uh, apparently animation's the next black there's going to be a, a lot of that kicking about can you honestly say that your love for what you do is as strong as it was before you started this oh yeah yeah absolutely every every day just like listening to film music and just yeah i always like you know i always imagine like you know being you know, in the cinema, you know, having finished scoring an epic sci-fi fantasy trilogy and being the guy that's like, you know, watching it with an audience, like, and because I thought, yeah, I, I always wanted to be the guy who done the music for, for that stuff um, and still do. So, yeah, just, yeah, still obsessed. That's fantastic. Is there any anything on the horizon that you can actually tell us about? The, well, there's, there's Demon Headmaster Series 2's being greenlit. We're not sure, just we're not sure about if it's going to got pushed back and it may be next year that that happens. So there's that. And I've, I've just pitched for another CBBC show, but I, I'll not say it just yet, just in case, you know, you know, you don't get it and you know, it makes you look a bit silly. So yeah, another CBBC show pitch for, yeah, another one. <laughs> Any feature films on the horizon at all, Phil? There's a couple, like, in development, but nothing like... What's your feeling towards the feature film? Yeah, I, I love it. Like, the last one I've done was a feature film called Matriarch, which was shot and made up here in Scotland. You know, low budget, a horror thriller. I'd, yeah, I loved it. I'd, I'd scored over about two months. Just loved it. Moody, dark, moody horror music. You know, I loved doing all that kind of stuff. In terms of the actual music itself, have we got to the um, the, the actual historical stroke cultural point where everything's a cliche? Uh, yeah, may, may, maybe. Yeah, maybe. What I mean by that for listeners is... The uh, is usually I don't know why, but it's always the woman decides to walk on her own in the the middle of the night through the woods, and of course, <laughs> of course, there's some absolute madman with an axe waiting. And when he eventually does, when she looks round to see her uh, nemesis come in and put the axe through her head, there's a massive thing that's generally called a stinger. Yeah, which invariably yeah. has an anvil in it. So. <laughs> uh, is is it all a bit like a set play, you know, almost like a rugby game now, where this does that and that does that? Yeah, like definitely. Like when if you sit and watch a horror film, you can definitely tell when the the jump scare is going to be because there's always like a bit of suspenseful suspenseful underscore followed by a few seconds of silence. Like ah, oh, just the cat. <laughs> I you know that 
The Jurassic Park one's a classic. When I can't remember the guy's name, but the the programmer and she goes, "Oh, Mr. Anderson," and she grabs his arm, and it comes away. <laughs> <laughs> That's a classic stinger. Yeah. Well, I always think, like, especially with horror music, um, and again with Matrix, I'm not going to, you know, I don't, I, I know I've plugged all, all my, my work and stuff like that, but I always find, like, with horror scores, like, the absence of music is just so much more powerful. But, like, in the in the Matriarch film, as a the start of the film, like, even the first 30 minutes, there's not that much in the score, only because I knew that as the score would goes on, there's more and more score, the film becomes more and more dramatic. And there's, like, a, there's a, uh, the, this young couple crash in the Scottish countryside and get given refuge at a, a farmhouse. Um, <laughs> it doesn't sound good. I know, yeah, it's not looking good. It's not looking good. Long term <laughs> survivability <laughs> is not looking good. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the lady, she's pregnant, and they sit. Even worse. It yeah. have to run at some point. Yeah. Uh, she does. But, yeah, of course she does. Yeah. And uh, they have a sit down meal with this uh, family who are really a bit weird. There's like the husband, there's the husband and wife and the two sons. And it's all a bit weird. And they sit down and have a meal with them. And there was just, there was no music in it. And it was great because it's just like, it makes it so much more awkward. It's like when there's like a, a silence between like a, a, any conversation and you can hear the, the chair creak and it's just like, mm. so yeah, the afternoon music. Mean like now. Yeah, yeah, just like that. <laughs> <laughs> that that yeah, that's dead space, folks. That's, yeah, that's what, yeah. You know, I think um, you see that just at heart back to that Jurassic Park movie. I think one of the I don't know if I, I said this when you were at Napier, but one of the great scenes I think in terms of music scoring, you can tell folks we're a pair of anoraks. <laughs> one of the great scenes is when the car is coming down the tree and John Williams. He just holds off and holds off and holds off some more until yeah. eventually that car, he, he, he does it on, I think, the third slip and then he brings in with sort of quite avant-garde, forceful music and it yeah. just it ratchets up the the suspense yeah. To, yeah. to the highest level. <laughs> yeah, I know, the time, yeah, that's it. It's just like the spot, it's, it's the spotting of the music, isn't it? Knowing where to bring it in, so important. Like, it's not just the content, it's way why you bring it in I can see that horror films must be such a laugh in a sense to do especially yeah. since you know as the composer you, you're seeing the entire film and you know how it's actually going to end whereas the audience don't <laughs> yeah and that's it yeah you can have, you can have like a lot of fun with it as well so yeah and I, I really love scoring there Matriarch really really great and the director of that is, again he's got uh, Scott Vickers he's got a couple of feature films in development so but yeah to see what happens with Absolutely, we'll they'll, we'll put uh, links to that on on the uh, the episode. So, yeah. so you see, when you get a film, Phil, how does it look, uh, and does it have any numbers, any things like that on it? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Matriarch. Uh, again, I got that through um, through getting Eve, the CBBC show. Uh, but uh, so I got the film to start with. They sent me the first five minutes because the director wanted like me to do a little demo. And it was kind of rough looking. It's not like graded and it's like slightly lower resolution to what it will be, you know, not crisp high, uh, high def or 4K. Uh, and it's got a, yeah, you got a time code at the top. So what's a time code? Uh, that just gives you the, uh, the indication of like the minutes, seconds and frames that the, the film is running. So you can, you can make things happen at a very specific time. Yeah, yeah. So I like anytime I send a cue, I will 
send the time code to the director of producer saying, okay, Q1 starts at 00, zero five minutes, four seconds, 12 frames. So it's really specific. What do you think the future holds for film scoring and scoring for in general and for composers like yourself? Where do you see the opportunities? I really don't know. I, I, I wonder if, I think for a while, I felt that like the only way into like scoring big feature films, not that I know I'm not scoring big feature films, but I thought like maybe the only way in to like make a living out of it was to go through the school of Hans Zimmer. And before I got Eve, and which was, you know, a sort of a, a break and, you know, made me become a full-time composer, I, I went to, to California on a road trip with the wife and went to, not, it's not Remote Control Productions, is it now? Hands in his production company to hand him, you know, all the dimmer. <laughs> you should watch yourself. You would have got grabbed and start having to ghost right. I know, I know. Well, yeah, but for a while I thought, like, that was just the, the only way in, but... I think more and more folk are doing it now. You can really like do, do it from the comfort of your own home, but for the most part, and even like Game of Thrones composer, uh, Raman Dizravi, big epic music and, and things, but I think even he, for the most part, were on a set of like a computer using sample libraries and just hiring the solo musician, the odd solo musician to play over the top of it. And I think it's just due to like, sk- like scheduling and stuff like that. And yeah, I, I, you know, honestly, I've, I've got a bit of a rubbish. I haven't really got a really good answer for that. Like, cause I'm just sort of, so like I get tunnel vision just thinking about my own career and I really don't it's all know. about you, isn't it, Phil? So selfish. It is. <laughs> I think, like, there's definitely more things getting made now with Netflix and Amazon all having their own original content, but there's, there's more people, there's more composers now. Uh, so I think there's always that ratio is always kind of balanced because maybe, like, 20 years ago, there wasn't as many things getting made, but there weren't as many of us, many composers doing it. And, yeah, like you say, animation now, like, that's one sector that's thriving at the moment. So, and it, but it's all these sectors, animation, kids TV, for, at least for composers, they're so competitive. And you have agents who like specialize in signing composers who just work in kids' TV and, and animation. Have you ever wanted an agent, Phil? I have, yeah. Like, I've met a couple, but I'm just uh, I'm not big enough for their books yet. The, the few agents that I've got in touch with, like, you know, one of them said I wasn't quite on the platform yet. And they, they were, they've got big guys in the books, like the guy who do like. The BBC One dramas, uh, like Downton Abbey, and and I actually inter- I interviewed for one uh, recently a BBC One drama they're called The Nest is on BBC One. Martin Compton, five part BBC One drama. It's like the type of gig that if you're a composer on TV, you want to get it because you know on top of the fee, the healthy royalties that I afterwards. As well. Again, it was the the producer of the show worked on Eve, so that I got an interview. Um, she was a line producer, not the main, she wasn't the main producer on Eve, she was a line producer, like, slightly below, And but then she got the job as the main producer on this BBC One drama, so that was my foot in the door there. So it was exciting, and I pitched a couple of tracks, done an interview, but the exec producer wanted a named composer who had... Uh, I've got a good name. <laughs> <laughs> so do you know who got that gig? Uh, yeah, a guy called uh, Paul Leonard Morgan. Never heard of him. He used to be based in Glasgow, but he's in Los Angeles now. He wrote the music for Dread, Limitless, and now he's doing the new film, this Dynasty series over in uh, in America. He's California-based now, Tales of the Loopy. Yeah, if you look at it, you'll see his credits. You'll, he's got a bigger reputation than me, that's for sure. 
Well, I think people listening to this around the world will have got an awful lot out of it because they'll be able to do done a lot of high-end work, Phil, but you're still a very approachable uh, person who it's not like in some stratosphere that nobody can ever even conceive of themselves being in. And I think that's important, especially when you're starting out. You know, everybody wants to be the big, the big whatever, but the reality is very few just land there. There's a, as I, I hate saying it, there's a journey to be taken. I know, I know. I, I love what I do right now. Like, I look like it's such a privilege to make a living out of it and write music. Like, you know, just, even just doing the Demon Headmaster last year, just like sat writing music and, you know, the, the episode there. And then even going on set and just seeing how, just, you know, on a kid's TV show, just how many hundreds of people are busy working. And it's just like, it's a privilege that it gets all filtered up to me. All that hard work is just on the screen there. And like, it's, it's really humbling. And um, it's just, so, it's such a cool thing to do, isn't it? You know? Well, the privilege has been mine, all mine. Uh, thanks so much for spending this time with us. I'm sure lots of people have both enjoyed it and got a lot out of this, Phil. You've always been fantastic and given your time over for any madcap idea or thing that I'm doing. So um, <laughs> it's fantastic to see you again. Good luck with everything that you're doing and uh, I look forward to listening to more of your music on the next CBBC series that I watch. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. That was great to talk to you again, man. Okay, this was one of the longest podcasts for some time. I've generally tried to keep them under 45 minutes. If you've lasted to the end, well done. I hope you enjoyed it and that you found Phil an engaging person, it really is. I don't know why the, the stream, uh, the podcast, the audio was so difficult this time, but I think it was legible enough to hear all his words of wisdom about how he went about creating the career that he has. I would like you to hear some more, so we're going to play some of Phil's music on the way out. My name is Jed Brocky. It's been a pleasure having you here. There's a lot more podcasts coming up, because I've got the bug again and i've got a whole bunch of really interesting guests coming up real soon so please subscribe and uh, it'd be great to have your company on the next one so bye for now Yeah.